the reality is, even though some of these tools are amazing, even though some of these, these platforms and these services do a great job, the threat landscape is such that there is no single solution. There is no, there is no magic bullet. And it's really about resilience. It's really about layers of risk controls. And I'm not just talking about technologies. I'm talking about people. I'm talking about different stakeholders, legal uh, communications, you know, IT, infosec, compliance. They, they all really are integral to um, what companies, what organizations should be doing to protect themselves. Do you want to hear about the latest developments in the cyber market and learn best practices and thought leadership from cyber insurance and security experts? We talk all things cyber insurance industry, international growth, cyber claims, and more. Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Insurance Leaders Podcast. Raf, uh, welcome to the show. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me, Anthony. Great. Well, um, just for our audience, uh, what could you... Uh, Tell me about yourself, uh, your company, and your team. What do you sure. do? So, yes. So uh, my name is Rafael or Raf Sanchez. I work at Beasley, a cyber insurance company. And my role is the head of cyber services. And really what that's about is managing a team of professionals and the tools that help them to interact with our clients it used to generally be about incidents and helping them during crises, but increasingly we are looking to interact with our insureds and add value throughout the policy period with proactive services, risk consulting, anything we can do to engage with them. Okay, great. Um, so just in terms of geographies then, uh, what, what geographies do you really focus on in your role? A lot of the team... And frankly, a lot of the premium is focused on the US. The US is a, I believe, quite mature market, whether you look at it from the buyer's perspective, from brokers, from carriers. The, the history of US buying has been something that sustained and built the team from, from that kind of ge geography. But the development of privacy laws across the world has helped buying outside of the US. And so generally what Beasley has done is offered cyber insurance where those laws have sprung up, where legal obligations, regulatory obligations require robust response to cyber incidents. So outside of the US, we're looking at continental Europe, we're looking at certain territories in the Asia Pacific region, Australia, Singapore, Hong Kong. But I would say the lion's share is really the US and Europe. Okay. So, you know, I, I guess then in terms of client size, is there any particular client size that you guys really like to focus on? I think there's a difference between what we like to focus on and what we actually focus on. Mm. Technically, we support all of our cyber clients from the smallest sole proprietor up to very large and sophisticated entities. And that's a challenge because you have to have a different message and a different offering for all of those different cohorts or types of clients. But I would say that the greatest engagement we have is probably in the squishy middle. Mm -hmm. um, organizations maybe that have some resource and some understanding of the risks and, and want to address them, but are not fully 
staffed to do that themselves. Okay. And so I guess coming, coming from that, then what do you think your company's real strength is in dealing with your clients? So Beasley's been selling cyber insurance and supporting cyber clients for almost a decade. And the real strength I have is, is my team. There are lots of tools and playbooks and resources you can use to help deal with incidents and offer services. But the absolutely most crucial thing for me is to have a team of individuals who are expert at what they do. And many of the people on my team have been handling incidents for many years. They have a diverse range of backgrounds and diversity of thought is something I really value as a, as a manager. And so really, I'd say it is about the people, maybe a bit of a cliche, but it's, it's true in our case. Okay. Strong team, strong people. Um, so, you know, I think Beasley's pretty well known for uh, engaging quite a bit with clients, you know, providing a lot of expertise, as, as you mentioned. Um, you know, what would you say when you look at just companies today in general? What is something you think they're getting completely wrong when it comes to cyber? Obviously, I'd I'd never tell anyone they're getting anything completely wrong, but I but seeing as it's just me and you and no one else is listening, <laughs> uh, I would say that I do feel that organizations often feel there's a, a magic bullet, there's a secret solution, and they're the only ones that have found it. And unfortunately, sometimes those are vendor solutions. They've, they've bought mm -hmm. a product, an appliance, a service, and the, the marketing is very slick. You know, the stats are, are great. They're in the correct magic quadrant. But the reality is, even though some of these tools are amazing, even though some of these, these platforms and these services do a great job, the threat landscape is such that there is no single solution. There is no, there is no magic bullet. Mm. And it's really about resilience. It's really about layers of risk controls. And I'm not just talking about technologies. I'm talking about people. I'm talking about different stakeholders, legal uh, communications, you know, IT, infosec, compliance, they, they all really are integral to um, what companies, what organizations should be doing to protect themselves. Mm. Okay. So I'm kind of hearing, you know, that, that maybe the, the, the thing is, you know, companies are not enough focused on, you know, broad resilience, all the things you need to do to, to really, uh, really reco recover quickly. Uh, what do you think that is? Is it, you know, do they think it's an easy thing to recover from a cyber incident or, you know, what are your thoughts? You know, why do you think they're not focused enough on broad resilience? I guess some of the issues is that there are lots of different stakeholders, right? And each has an area of responsibility. So the CISO will broadly feel that he or she has addressed the risks in their area. The GC or compliance professionals may have done what they feel they need to do. And um, I think sometimes there isn't a great deal of joining of the dots. And so issues may fall between the cracks, issues may fall between areas of responsibility. And that is, I think, where there's that 
overconfidence maybe because each person has done what they believe is is necessary but actually the threat actors are very adept at changing tactics updating their their procedures and exploiting any weakness any gap that they can and so that, that's where i think there are um issues and I, I do feel sometimes there is an element of overconfidence that, mm. um, you know, the, the solution is going to help them to recover immediately, but there's always something that isn't planned or wasn't thought of. And so you, you also think they don't believe it'll happen, you know, and, you know, definitely in terms of overconfidence, the okay. amount of times I've heard, well, you know, we're not, you know, and they'll give an example of a large, organization in their industry obviously we're not that and we're not this mm -hmm. and so th there's always almost like a, a mental um belief that there are others that are more susceptible rather than them and i'm sure there's some psychology to this but it's it's not a threat that is immediately visible i think you know if you mm -hmm. are um protecting a building against fire i feel it's it's just easier for people to understand the risks and maybe adopt an, a posture that will protect them holistically. Whereas mm. with cyber, because it is such an esoteric, because it isn't, um, you know, it's, it's an intangible risk and it's an intangible asset, actually. The data of the company, the reputation of the, the organization, it's, I think that's where there's, um, it, maybe overconfidence is the wrong word. It's, it's an inability to, to imagine the, the nature of and, and the widespread nature of the risk. Mm. Okay. Um, so I guess, you know, look, speaking of imagination, uh, what would you say, you know, the boards are going to be looking at in terms of risks, you know, say in five years? It's, in, it's interesting because I'm not sure boards are looking at what the risks are <laughs> in five at, years. Yeah. It's, and I think that's the conversation we need to have. It, it, you know, ransomware was, I th strongly believe, um, massively underestimated until it was too late. Mm -hmm. And I also believe that on the, um, on the side of, of you know, the ecosystem, the lawyers, the vendors, the organizations themselves, there was, I, think overconfidence in their own abilities and their own tools. And what we saw was attackers who were very quickly able to change their uh, methodologies to adapt. So boards and, and the executives who sit in them and, and, and those who report to them need to be thinking about, you know, what are the next, what is the next challenge? Because I'll give you an example, MFA, multi-factor authentication was very much seen as state of the art five years ago. And, and now it's kind of table stakes. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's a challenge, but you, we have to have people who are looking beyond the horizon. We have to have people who are looking beyond their next remuneration timeframe. And I don't know what the average tenure of a CISO is or a GC is, but I would hazard a guess that they are going to be motivated to implement controls that are going to be visible within their time frame at that company mm. boards need to be thinking about that adage you know um you know planting a tree that you know the next generation will will benefit from the shade 
rather than themselves. So I don't have an answer as to what they should be looking for, but I think the key is adopting a, a long-term approach to risk yeah. planning. It makes sense. I think sometimes you can you can see what's coming. Um, you know, I think the ransomware one is an interesting, interesting example because it was for so long mostly, you know, an annoyance. But I can remember doing scenarios probably six, seven years ago at this point, you know, sort of realistic disaster scenario type things. We'd say, well, what if we took all those worms that were hitting everybody, you know, a few years ago and combined it with a ransomware? What would that look like? And then, you know, just a couple of years after that, you started seeing WannaCry and NotPetya sort of blowing everything up. So I think people didn't understand it, but it's like you said, um, you had sort of... Well, like a couple of things you have implied, I guess I should say, you know, they're not really planning for it. You know, it's kind of some thoughts somewhere. Maybe some experts have it, you know, maybe it's down in a silo somewhere, you know, but at the board level, you know, there's not really visibility into that. There's nobody saying, right, we've got to look at everything strategically over the next five years because they're, you know, they're thinking about today. Yeah. And, and, and there are a lot of short term challenges most organizations are using increasingly using larger data sets and whether it's for sales, whether it's for whatever kind of goal their organization has data and electronic data is, is at the heart of that. And so, yes, I think it's very difficult to, mm. to understand what is going to be the next threat in four years because the environment's constantly changing you know the move from from on-premise infrastructure to the cloud massively changed the the controls that needed to be put mm -hmm. in place there was no longer any perimeter and i'm not sure whether you could have predicted the rise of you know uh massively available huge quantities of compute power in the cloud mm -hmm. that came out of a retail business right that's, yeah. that's i don't think you know boards are looking at you know how can they deliver value to shareholders? Um, Nonprofits, you know, have other metrics that they're thinking of as as how they measure success. And if you have something like the tra transition to cloud that comes along, if there is a massive driver in terms of cost benefits, efficiency benefits, compute benefits, that's a decision that's mm -hmm. going to be taken, and and the the kind of risk planning and the risk controls will follow, and 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 that's where where you have that lag that provides the opportunity to the attackers. They don't have a budget that was agreed nine months ago, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have to stick to a um, incident response implementation project that was agreed 18 months ago. They can immediately switch and create a tool. They can post on dark web forums that they're offering a million dollar reward or a bug bounty, as we saw recently with one threat group. And so they will exploit those gaps. They will exploit those those timeframes that organizations operate under, which are months and years or quarters. And, you know, they they will need days or weeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the speed difference is, uh, is definitely pretty dramatic. Um, so I guess shifting gears a bit in terms of, you know, your role, uh, you know, what metrics or KPIs are most important to you? What are you really focused on? So I, I spoke a bit about my team. One of my most important metrics is, am I keeping my team motivated and challenged in their in their in their daily jobs and careers? the The importance of there is no AI platform. There is no automated tool or 
playbook or process that can replace the expertise and experience of the people on my team. So one of my main roles as a manager is to ensure that they are motivated and um, able to share their knowledge with our clients. So that that's kind of one thing, perhaps not on the, strictly speaking, on the cybersecurity side, but what they are doing to help clients and how that is shifting the risk profile of their clients is probably the most important KPI. So mm. it doesn't matter how many times I talk to a client, if the client doesn't do what we believe will improve their risk profile, you know, that that's not really going to help Beasley as an organization or that client. And that's the, the key thing is I need to, and my team needs to motivate organizations to improve their risk profile. Yes, they bought insurance, mm -hmm. but the reality is no insurance policy will make them 100% whole magically a day after an incident. So the KPI, what, what I really need to measure is, am I providing insights, services to clients that will motivate them to use those services? Mm -hmm. Am I proving to them that because I'm an insurance carrier and my money is on the line, that the things that I'm offering them, the services I'm offering them, the insights are directly impacting and helping them. And so that's what I really need to measure. And that is difficult because mm. the conversation at the moment is still quite guarded. I, I would suggest that most organizations would rather not interact with their insurance carriers mm. if they didn't need to. Yeah. And if I could shift that perception, move that dial or needle, it would be to have people, have risk managers, CISOs, GCs, believe that we're adding value to them apart from the, the reimbursement element of the policy. So that, that's what I'd like to measure. And and I don't yeah. I, honestly I don't have an answer, Anthony, as, as to how best to measure that. But yeah, it's um I think it's such a hard problem to solve though, because you know it, it, it isn't just you know your team's expertise or you know the team being really motivated and and engaging out with clients. Like you said, there is a a sort of a people connection thing you know, or there's a distrust that tends to happen with insurance companies, but there's, you know, there's an extraordinary degree of alignment, in my opinion, between the services offered by insurers and um, sort of the insureds, because you do get to see, you know, the thing that was interesting to me moving from um, generic cybersecurity, I'll call it, you know, sort of the old assessment world into insurance is that all of a sudden, instead of being so worried about the, you know, 1000 different security issues a company may have, you're worried about the five things are going to cause an expensive claim. And those five things are really useful for an insured to know. And it was, and especially the bigger they get, the less they engage with you often. Cause they go, Oh, we know, we know this, we know security. We don't need, you know, we don't need our insurer telling them, telling us this, but it, it is actually really useful information for anyone, in my opinion. That's why we approach all conversations with our clients mm. and broker partners with humility. We don't know the answers to everything. Otherwise, mm. we probably wouldn't be selling cyber insurance. Yeah. But we have seen what works uh, through, unfortunately, tens of thousands of yeah. individual experiences and incidents. And what we can do is is you know have an open conversation with our 
clients, prove to them that sharing does not worsen their situation because ultimately, and, and I, there is a degree of cynicism, you know, look at what happened after not pet here. There is a degree of cynicism about the motivations of, of insurance carriers. And mm. yes, ultimately you have bought an insurance contract that does have exclusions, that does have limitations. But in the case of cyber insurance, if you look at the, the way they're worded, you know, cyber insurance cover is very broad. Mm-hmm. And I almost never am involved in any conversation around coverage. It's it's usually um, quantification, and uh, you know uh, mm-hmm. the, the conversations we have is is how quickly can you can you help? And and universally, once we do get to talk to our insureds, that's that's the type of conversation we're having. It's it's really just opening that conversation up, having something that will motivate you, Anthony, as a policyholder, to pick up the mm-hmm. phone or compose an email and say, Hey, okay, I'll spend five minutes with you talking about this and Mm -hmm. say, that's really what I want to measure. I want to measure how, how effective am I in persuading you that there's some value in, in spending your valuable time talking to me. Mm. Yeah. It's a, it's a uh, tough, tough metric. Um, so I guess uh, you know if you were uh, in a room with uh, with ten of your peers, and and peers can be, you know, let's just say anybody in the cyber insurance industry. Maybe we'll uh, we'll put it that that'll be how we define peers, uh, cyber insurance or cyber security. Uh, you know, what question would you ask that group of people? It's interesting because yeah, if we if we limited peers to kind of incident response, it would be rare actually to be in a room ever with mm. 10 peers outside of, for example, a conference where you're mm-hmm. really in a sell, selling environment or you're, you know, uh, you're, you're kind of marketing the value of your company. Yeah. And I think that's what I would, if I could get 10 of my peers in the room, uh, is say, why don't we talk more often? I think there's obviously a competitive element because we're each selling a competing product, but I think there is huge value in being able to have some basic common approaches or standards that will help the insured to more easily purchase insurance because there's a standard question set, for example, when you come to apply for cyber insurance, or perhaps there's a standard response, you know, with with variations that a policyholder or the stakeholder would would come to expect no matter who they bought the the insurance policy from so i think that's what i would i would be asking is what can we do to increase the better the the perception of the insurance world to our clients what can we do to make it easier for them to buy and to hold cyber insurance to mm. ask for help during an incident I would say that's probably an area that I am a relative newcomer to the insurance market in the last six years. I still think there's a lot we could do there to make it an easier and more comfortable proposition for, for buyers. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it makes sense. I think, you know, you see a lot of activities, I guess, out there to try to make it easier, a lot of training, attempts at simplification, but there are still so many barriers to purchasing. I think especially at the at the 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 more complex, the more um 
higher premium end of the market. Now mm. they are more buying more bespoke products and, 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 um, you know, so necessarily there will be some, you know, you're not just buying a kind of off the shelf, you know, uh, products, you, you know, there will be some negotiations and, and discussions to and fro, but I think in terms of adopting some kind of standard or framework, even as simple as recording incident metrics, mm. you know, we, we know that there are multiple frameworks out there, and, you know, we, 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 I'll say to you, you know, have a currently fairly proprietary model. And I think there would be benefits to everyone in the, every chain in the market, um, in terms of how incident metrics are recorded, for example, and shared. Mm. Yeah, that, that would be, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of data sharing. We've talked a lot about on the, on the show around data sharing standardization of, of sort of some of this data. And, and I know there's efforts to do that, but as you mentioned earlier, you know, some of it is the competitive aspect of it. It can be difficult to really be that open sometimes, um, even though I think it benefits everybody uh, in the long run, at least. Uh, so I guess uh, in terms of biggest challenge then, uh, what would you say that would be for yourselves, your team or your company, either one? Uh, my biggest challenge is having cultural references that are understood by the majority of my team. Uh, so during mm. meetings, if I refer to Ferris Bueller's Day Off or films from the nineties uh, and get uh, blank stares, but um, but no, no, that's not. Wait a minute. So uh, that that has to be a team night, I think. But yeah. Office Space was the one for me moving to the UK. Everybody yes. in the U.S. understands Office Space references, even people who were probably like two when the movie came out. You come here and everybody goes, "What?" The the two bobs are cultural <laughs> icons for me, and um, I spend most of my day sending people YouTube clips. That's really the value I bring to Beasley. Um, but uh, standardization, yes. But no, no, so, uh, again, if I start with the team, maybe unconventionally, yeah, um, yeah there, there's a challenge in in having a you know a global team. Honestly, most of whom mm. have you know, are not meeting face-to-face. -face. Mm. We had our first face-to-face -face encounter um, earlier in the summer in Chicago. Right. I had not met over half my team in person wow. and had formed assumptions about what these people were like as human beings. Yeah. And when I met them in person, some of them were absolutely the opposite of what I assumed. And mm. and that impacts you as a team because... yeah you know, you, you do need to understand who you're working with and, and to, to be an effective team and, and, and one where you take on board the diversity of thought and the different experiences of others, I think is extremely important again, as a, as a manager. So, um, I think that's a challenge. So, you know, ma maintaining an effective team and, and a good working environment for people where they may not be work meeting their peers very frequently yeah. is, is a challenge. Uh, and, and, and that's, that's really a change, right? That, you know, mm. there are changing working environments, there are changing commercial environments. And so how you adapt to change and how you ensure you, you bring people along with you and you don't implement things without understanding the impacts on them is, is really important. So that's like a general mm. kind of challenge. I think in terms of cybersecurity and, and, and the product we're selling, the challenge is realizing what we did before is not good enough. Incident response is the baseline. 
incident response is expected and and absolutely necessary but it is it is it is not going in the current environment with the the adaptability and the effectiveness of these threat actors it is not going to be enough that organizations that suffer a major incident are going to be hurting and and some of them mm-hmm. may not survive it doesn't matter how good our team is it doesn't matter how many professionals such as yourselves are are involved in the incident it's going to have widespread implications mm-hmm. and honestly sometimes these are quite challenging for us you know we see you know we see people resigning and leaving organizations because of the stress and and the emotional pain of of having had to have you know stayed up late for 3 weeks yeah. or slept in the office and and it's it's really that that um the imp- the impact i think is often misunderstood cybersecurity and cyber incidents they sound very again intangible and mm-hmm. um but it does have direct impacts on on human beings the the people who are involved and and the companies and the organizations that 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 suffer them so that's that's de- that's definitely a challenge the kind of stress of that that environment um mm-hmm. so so there there are lots of different challenges uh and and it's um th- there are no quick fixes again it, it's it's about slowly adapting to them and, and and understanding how you can how you can change mm. okay um so i guess uh you know just current events what do you find interesting cyber, cyber current events let's limit it to cyber so uh, you know, I, I part of my job is 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 trying to do a bit of horizon scanning. I don't think I'm very good at it, and uh, I need a stronger pair of glasses at times. But um, the the fascinating thing for me is the threat landscape. Is is the fact that you know the control that you were touting three weeks ago now has a workaround. The fact that bug bounty programs have been seized on by threat actors as a, as a good way of acquiring new code or new, new access methods. So I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the environment, the, the, the attackers, um, and how, how inventive they are. It's, uh, it's sort of, it's sort of kind of like MacGyver, but in real life and it's, and it works, you know, MacGyver, you always kind of believed it wasn't believable um and and in cybersecurity you know you you find things that are incredibly effective and and actually quite easy and it's it's the it's the imagination or the inventiveness of the attackers that that has has helped it to succeed geopolitical developments are obviously very interesting in particular how they impact the frequency and severity of of attack mm-hmm. as a cyber insurance carrier really what we care about is helping organizations return to normal state of operations right we, we are not here to prosecute criminals we're not here to understand the motivations or even the identity of the attackers really our priority is helping organizations recover mm. and so i would not say i am privy or even aware of the exact motivations and control structures that are there but what it's clear is there is a there is an interrelationship between geopolitical events and what we see in the attack landscape number of incidents severity of incidents 
And I'm sure there are rooms of people who would be much better informed than me. And uh, my wife has always tutored me in um, ensuring that I keep my mouth shut if I don't have a valuable opinion to to offer. I think that's that's good advice for anyone, really. Uh, so I would definitely say I, I don't have a very well-informed opinion, but I'm fascinated mm. by that interrelationship between wider geopolitical events and what we see amongst mainly financially motivated attackers. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, it's a it's a great point. I think um, you know I've I've seen today, or perhaps it was yesterday, somebody posting about a you know a, a pretty significant drop in ransomware, and I you know since the you know in the last few months, you know likely likely possibly maybe related to you know the current current war in in Ukraine, um, but we don't know you know, and it is interesting to try to figure out you know these are financial actors you know how would this have an impact? Why would it have an impact? Um, I think it's it's been really interesting to see um, on the cyber side what's going on. Yes. I mean, the, the difficulty is we don't see a consistent trend. So mm. we see in some cases certain threat groups disappearing, but mm. then other threat groups that we haven't seen for a number of years reappearing and, and conducting attacks. So it's very difficult to understand or predict what's going on. Mm-hmm other than to say that there are impacts and the the challenge for us is understanding when geopolitical events resolve will we be you know back to where we back. were yeah. 6 months ago will will mm. we see different types of attacks i believe that some of the some of the kind of anonymity that certain threat groups enjoyed before um you know, before this year has has gone, you know, you, we've seen doxing mm-hmm. between threat groups and affiliate groups, mm-hmm. and that seemed to have a fairly significant impact. So it'll be interesting yeah. to, to me to see how they react and, and what, what, you know, what, what the next kind of phase is going to, going to be. That's, mm. um, I guess the unpredictability all comes back to, you know, groups of people, you know, and in some ways they may have some level of predictability, but they're still people. So, you never quite know. And, and it comes back to that resilience, right? You know, it may mm. be that, you know, as an example, I would say one one of the features we see as being quite indicative of, of organizations having to consider paying threat actors is, is the quantity of data they hold. Mm. So, you know, data retention, data storage policies, guidelines, data cast categorization and classification these are not things that people traditionally see as being you know they would probably be kind of incidental to cyber security but actually you know we 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 find certain correlations between organizations that have you know huge quantities of data particularly perhaps data that's been kept on prem just mm. in case they've transitioned to the cloud but they've kept some data stores legacy systems just in case they needed it. Mm-hmm. And so that that's the sort of thing that why we talk about resilience. It, it's as much your data classification policy as your EDR tool that could actually be the the factor that that helps you in an incident. And you you are not going to be able to pivot in two weeks. An attacker yeah. might be. So those controls that you think might not be integral now could actually be key in mm. 
you know, the next phase of, of attack. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I guess, so, you know, we have uh, another set of questions we like to ask folks um, just to uh, get to know them a little more. Uh, first one of those is uh, how did you originally get into the insurance industry? How'd you end up here? So, so the backstory, the superhero backstory is uh, I got into law first because I really wanted to be an architect. And uh, my mum being European was brutally honest and said I didn't have the, uh, I wasn't good enough to be a decent architect. Ouch. I might be designing bridges or toilets, but <laughs> why don't you become a lawyer? You don't have to be particularly good. You just have to study hard and read lots. So I, I became an intellectual property lawyer because my mum said I wasn't a good enough architect. <laughs> and um, I, I worked yeah. in, in financial services in, in the kind of uh, IP space and only got into privacy and cybersecurity because nobody else wanted to do it. And information uh, security was, was kind of, you know, IP, you're kind of close to that. Why don't you do a bit of, of yeah. that too? And um, so, so I, I had a background in, 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 in-house in information security, privacy, in financial services organizations that were very large. And I, I'll be very honest, I became a parent and I valued my time more than I did before I was a parent. And I wanted to do something where I felt mm -hmm. I had some impact. And so I looked for uh, an I really wasn't looking for insurance. I was looking for an organization smaller than 20,000 people where I felt that I could make a appreciable difference. Okay. And so insurance was not a planned move. Um, uh, and it was, it was really due to the size of the entity that I, I was, where there was an opening, which was Beasley. Okay. Interesting. Well, I guess, uh, it's been six years now, so it's worked out well. They haven't found me out yet. I'm sure they will one day and, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be on to the next, the next great thing. Uh, so I guess, uh, what would you recommend to anyone who, uh, who wants to have a successful career e either in le legal, since you, you know, you have that background or insurance or both. I think uh, having a successful career is probably, and I'm not going to use the word passion because that's a horrible cliche, but having something that you have some interest in, I, I think it's, you're not going to be successful if you, if you intrinsically hate what you're doing. Mm. And so I think it's about finding something that you find challenging or interesting. If you mm. want, if you, if you have a passion, I, I very much doubt you'd be passionate about tax law, but I don't know, there's all kinds of people in this world, Anthony. So maybe some people are genuinely it's, passionate about tax. I think you never, you never know what you're going to like, you know, until you, you do it sometimes. True. So, so I think, mm. I think really having, a, having a successful career is really having a career you enjoy. Cause if you enjoy mm. what you do, you're likely to commit emotional and physical resource to it. Yeah. And, and so you'll, you'll succeed because you, you're doing a good job. And so pick something you enjoy or at least can mm. have some interest in. Okay. Sounds good. Um, another question I sometimes ask who should be the next podcast guest and why? Oh, it's a tough one. I think you should interview someone on the other side of the fence. See if you can see if you can find a reformed hacker or a current be interesting. hacker. Now, yeah. I don't know how many of them really want Go. any publicity, but that would be 
I, I'm always fascinated in, in their world. Yeah. So have to blur it out. You know, you do the, the zoom where they blur their whole face. Yes. Yeah. Paper bag. No, I'm sure there's, there's ways to, uh, yes. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so you can, uh, is there anything, you know, kind of addressing our audience who, um, so far been across the chain in insurance, you know, lots of different, uh, you know, insurance legal, um, is the audience. If you can directly address them, what could you, what could the audience help you with? What would you like from the audience? I think probably going back to your point on having 10 people in the room, mm. I, th I think it's, it's about having that open engagement. Y you know, if, if you're a broker partner, if you're a carrier, yes, we're possibly selling competing products or services, but ultimately the success of our industry is offering a product or a service that mm. provides value to our clients. And there are lots of alternative ways of managing risk and, 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 you know, mitigating risk. So I would love us to be the default, the absolute best solution for our clients. And I think we need to talk more and, and make sure, as I said, we're offering something that is easy to buy, well understood, provides clear value and is, is more than just a product that they, they purchase and, and put in a drawer. It's a, it's an ecosystem. Yeah. It's a platform. It's, it's a service that is providing value every day. Okay. Well, great. Well, thanks. Thanks for your, uh, thanks for your time and thanks for coming on the show and, and sharing your thoughts. Uh, Thank you, Anthony. Great. Well, we'll uh, say goodbye for now and um, we'll talk again soon. Great. Thanks so much. If you want to learn more about our host Anthony or his company Aserius, visit aserius.com. A-S-C-E-R-I-S.com. Thanks to our friends at Savu for producing this episode with us. See you next time.